Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back to another fantastic episode of Finding Peaks, made fantastic by yours truly, the host, Brandon Burns, <laughs> Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Joined today, again, by rarely seen yeah. Jason Friesman, Chief <laughs> Clinical Officer, LPC LSE. All right brain things clinical. Absolutely. Chief Operating Officer Clint Nicholson, all, oh no, excuse me, LPCLAC, all you. left brain things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Got to drop the, the, got to get the credentials in there. In the there. credentials yeah, in, there. Those in there. They are the most important aspect. Today on this show, <laughs> we are going to talk about uh, IOP, not the services in and of themselves and the, which we do at Peaks, but just kind of a, around the edges, skirt around it, talk to the family systems out there, you know, maybe uh, future patients of IOP programs in pursuit of these things. And um, going back to uh, the most recent episode we did, Behind the Care, viewers, check it out. Uh, I think it was an excellent episode. You might notice me tearing up at the end of it because it got emotional, <laughs> but I held it in like a strong left-brained person <laughs> does here, right? So I think diving into this, I, the, the kind of the first question I wanted to just ask to you guys, because sometimes it feels like it's true. Okay, we find that Johnny has a substance use disorder or a major mental health you know, disorder of some type. You're the family member, you're looking at them. And there's gonna be an incredible amount of ambivalence, right, around like, I don't have a problem, or maybe they see that they have a problem, but uh, in our collective experiences, for me it seems like the first option is always gonna be kind of the, the path of least resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Detox into a residential stabilization model, often IOP and those sort of things. Um, you know, and, and being that you, I think both are were in private practice at some point, or at least you, mm -hmm. you're in private practice both private practice, right? Uh, I would imagine you get a lot of individuals just say, no, I'm gonna go do counseling, and then they arrive at the Frieza's office and mm -hmm. it doesn't look like they just need counseling. I mean, yeah. is, it, is this accurate? Is this a good starting point for yeah, all? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're hitting it right on the head. Absolutely, people every day, I'm sure, walk into outpatient or private practice offices and say, I might be drinking a little too much and I need to stop. Uh, oh, I need me? to cut down. That would or be I need like, to cut down. That would be the uh, outpatient. Too many calories, yeah. empty calories. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I need to cut down. I want to go from two bottles of wine to two glasses of wine. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. Okay. A lot of that mentality, especially if people are just going to private practice. And, um, and really what you see is a sort of unrecognized like substance use disorder or even uh, you know, major mental health issue if somebody is like really not functioning and they barely made it to your office in the first place. Yeah. So from that moment in a private practice setting, are you referring into an IOP? Or are you looking for residential detox? Or generally, what is the kind of the go-to there? You know, Brandon, that's interesting. When you, when you kind of mentioned that we'd be talking about this today, I thought about um, when I was doing outpatient therapy, um, the, the training I had received was that people were supposed to kind of challenge you know, maybe go to detox, but then back to outpatient, fail that, IOP, fail that, PHP, fail that, then go to residential. Huh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why I was trained in that fashion, but that was the way I was trained that, like, the qualifications to send people to residential treatment was failed treatment episodes at lower sure. levels of care. Mm. Maybe that comes out of my small reading of our small reading of the history of our industry, kind of going back to the 70s when they came out with 30-day model. Um, I think I gave it, this was part of my speeches once upon a yeah. time at a conference, it was something in like 19, when insurance benefits first came out, 
uh, in that regard, uh, the state of Massachusetts um, basically was like the, uh, the, the state that said this has to continue for at least 30 days. So if you're going to insure an individual within the state of Massachusetts, you have to provide 30 days of care as an insurance benefit plan. So this would be Blue Cross, Cigna have, would have to pay for these 30-day benefits. And then out of that, of course, you get an extraordinary amount of abuses when you say you have to you know, do 30 days in that regard. And so insurance companies, upon all those abuses, went in the other direction to say you had to have these prior failures to get into the residential yeah. to avoid that. 20 years later, out comes the Florida model of care and the abuses that take place on the other side of it. We're not gonna bore the audience with that, but I think this is where this is sort of coming from. So if it's the, if it's the path of least resistance, you know, why in your clinical experiences is it that case? That it is the path, why? why we, like the model that I just described? Like, not or not the model, but like, okay. you know, client comes in and they're trying to, you know, sit oh, down with the price. Right. I'm sure some of these patients, right, you inevitably end up getting to work with. And so why do, why do you think it starts with this sort of like, um, no, I can just do it over here and just do some talk therapy one hour a week and, and be fine and, and move forward from there? Wow. Like I, th a, I think um, oftentimes, uh, you know, talking about in the, in the substance use world, like people don't necessarily know what's best for them in their treatment. It, there's a lot of um, lack of self-awareness or maybe even some uh, lack of self-honesty that can occur. And, um, and I think this is just kind of human nature to do the minimum. Like if somebody wants to lose yeah. 10 pounds, maybe I can just, you know, not eat after 8 p.m. or something and that maybe should do it or whatever. And, and I think that that's a, like, I feel like that's a common human thing to just like, I'm just going to try a little. I don't need, I mean, I've heard it so many times in that setting. Like, I don't need to go to rehab or anything. It's not like I still have a job. I still have yeah. all these justifications of why I don't need to go to rehab. Um, but I just need some help cutting back a little bit. Um, so I just think it's, it's human nature is what it feels like to me. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't know if it's human nature or if it's more cultural that, I mean, we are as Americans just always looking for the easiest way to get the most uh, and best outcome possible. And I think, um, especially with something like rehab, like treatment uh, and like a residential treatment, there's so much stigma behind that. There's so much, there's a huge misunderstanding of what it actually is and what, um, or at least there's a huge lack of knowledge about what treatment actually is once you get in there and what you do and what the purpose is. Um, so I think that there are just multiple factors and probably a lot of fear as well from clients because for that very reason, because they don't know what it is, there is a lot of shame and um, associated with it, a, a lack of insight perhaps as well. Um, but it's, so there, I think there, we're, you're kind of going up a, a pretty big monolith of things and issues that will always guide people towards well, I'll do the least amount possible and just hope that I get better. Yeah. So. so, you know, one run up the ladder here for, you know, coming out of private practices, maybe the, the next path of least resistance is an intensive outpatient model of care, IOP programming that we can meet uh, three days per week, five days per week. Uh, the general curriculum for that from an hour standpoint is three clinical hours or more per day within a, sort of a per diem rate. We won't get into all the logistics of it to, and, and bore the viewers around the insurance side of things on that. But basically, three hours per day, three to five days per week. So anywhere from nine to 15 hours of clinical contact 
uh, time in that regard. Um, we're still kind of considering this as the, the, the path of least resistance. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like if you're going to go from, hey, I recognize I was called out maybe by a family member uh, or a loved one or a friend or somebody in my life that said, hey, maybe I think you have a problem. To me, it feels like to really engage in an IOP model with, um, with any sort of promise of a sincere outcome would require the individual to already be dedicated to, hey, I heard this, I recognize I have this problem, and so now I'm invested in this, and I'm doing this because you know, I got to work from 9 to 5, you guys have yeah, IOP services absolutely. at 6 p.m., and I'm engaged in this, and I'm going to show up wholeheartedly each and every day feels like the right candidate for that move, who has already bought in that I have a problem, I don't want this to collapse around me, and I'm curious about how to find resolve moving forward. Yeah, they're past that like contemplation stage of change, and they're in that more preparation, like recognizing like something's got to change. I just don't know what or how much yet, but I know that I need more than just going to my therapist once a week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you bring up a good point when you talk about work and family and all that. I mean, residential treatment is disruptive. You know, it disrupts all of that. It's, it's all day, 24 hours a day. And some people just can't walk away from their lives like that. But um, I think that, uh, yeah, that, that would be sort of the ideal person is somebody who's past that sort of, well, maybe I have a problem, maybe I don't have a problem. And they've kind of more committed to this, like, all right, I've got I've to work something. I've got to figure something out or else mm -hmm. this is just going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that IOP level of care implies um, that the person can kind of manage the other um, 21 hours in the day. Right. And, and they have enough structure and enough support and enough other um, things in their life that can help them uh, remain sober. Because, you know, certainly if somebody does not have a job and doesn't have much um, support, um, doing IOP is really challenging because mm -hmm. they have a ton of other time uh, throughout the day that needs to be filled. And, um, and that IOP level of care is kind of, it, it's a risky level of care, if you will, because there is a lot of time and a lot of exposure to, to whatever it was that was causing um, the, the drinking or drug use or whatever is going on. Um, so I, I think uh, that's an important factor too. Like, okay, if you're, I mean, nine to 15 hours a week, you know, for us who work full-time jobs, like that would be a major commitment in our lives. But there are people that, um, that drugs or alcohol are taking up the vast majority of their life and the removal of that um, still leaves a gaping hole even at 15 hours a week. Yeah. So I'm gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do a delicate dance here. We're gonna call out some stuff in the industry at the same time, we're gonna put it back together and to make sense of it. But I think, you know, one thing that's clear from at least what we do is a stabilization model, right? We are so equipped from a staffing standpoint, certainly other treatment centers out there have you know, equal opportunities from staffing standpoint to do things like this, but you know, we had a little, little tiff in the detox area this morning, right? <laughs> Clients went after each other for whatever reason, right? And our company culture turned and gave attention to that while also turning and giving attention to the other clients and also turning and giving attention to the staff involved in support structures. Even if this was happening at 1 a.m. You know, in the morning, we would have had on-call you know, provider come in, on-call clinician, you know, on-call residential staff. We can you know, bring people in to nurture those uh, intense situations as they take fold. On the other side of this, you get representation across the 14,000 addiction treatment centers in America of, well, we do residential services too. 
And we've talked about it on this show on several times, but I, we just want to recapitulate with the viewers the Florida model of care here and the way that that works. Um, and it gets the name from its uh, induction in, from the Florida healthcare system in, in this regard. But the whole goal of it was really to create sort of a campus style feel, right? You can live on campus, you can walk over to here, do your job, you can go to school over here. And it's this real tight niche communal sort of setting uh, in that regard, but what our industry really did with that is place sober homes all around you know, the city in that regard and then set up an IOP program over here. And then we put the person in this home and we call it residential because we staff it, you know, and to be clear with everybody, Peaks did this four or five years ago, we know what this model of care looks like and what it means. And out of that, you end up getting, putting, you know, pretty, uh, unqualified individuals into a really into an environment where you're telling the family system we can support them in this residential model as if you're a stabilization culture a real inpatient residential setting with all the staff around it but we're really talking about an unlicensed professional kind of just being sort of parental within these environments to negotiate that and then in the mornings you get them up and you bus them over to the treatment center where you can actually bill for services. And so the thing that I wanna call out on behalf of this industry that all family systems should be aware of um, and that our industry can, as we did with our own immaturities as a company, move away from it, but to create an actual ambulatory setting as we've done with our intensive outpatient where people actually come in and aren't driven in, you know, in that regard. And I highlight that because what ends up taking place, especially if we're not collecting sober living fees over here, is insurance companies only paying for this location, for the IOP services. So if this isn't being paid for, we get into these ethical issues of fee splitting, taking insurance premiums to pay for sober living infrastructure. Mm. At the same time, it's being conveyed to the family system that this is a residential inpatient environment, and it's nothing of the sort. And so with that as sort of a backdrop and an introduction in, uh, or a reintroduction of this Florida model of care, you know, we were talking about on Finding Peaks uh, behind the care episode around how old peaks used to have sort of a narrative, right, that uh, uh, the patient's just not ready. They're not willing. They're unwilling. Uh, they're disruptive. They're, you know, you, you end up exchanging in real time a narrative that's not true for the patient to negotiate with family systems uh, in that regard, uh, that it's actually them not wanting to do the treatment when in fact you don't have the support structure around the individual to actually negotiate with them and get them on the right track in that regard. That's kind of a long spiel there. <laughs> Uh, in that regard, but I think it's an important bullet point to this because IOP services should be strictly ambulatory and that's why we opened up uh, the beginning of this with uh, that whole concept of like the path of least resistance. The Florida model of care attempts to do that, but it comes with all of these other sort of red flags alongside of it uh, and misuses of treatment episodes and uh, we're just not being honest with family systems about what's actually going on. So family systems at home, if you were able to stomach that long narrative I just gave you in that regard, uh, think about that when you're calling treatment centers who say they're residential in that regard and are they actually doing that because residential inpatient services should be and look much different than due to its reimbursement potential in intensive outpatient service. And if you find something like that, I'm not saying it's bad treatment, just be wary of what's going on when you're in those discussions and maybe highlight this episode with them to say, are you doing you know, this fee splitting stuff and whatever at the end of the day. But uh, 
Um, to the point of the behind the care episode, it seems like when we're in those model of cares, we start delivering narratives to the family systems that aren't necessarily true because the company itself, as you spoke to last time, lacks introspection, doesn't actually have the capacity through that introspection to actually do something different over here. And so we lob out these narratives. Um, and I just wanted to just briefly talk, it doesn't have to be pointed at that model of care, but just briefly talk about in the absence of larger company cultures, how you get into these narrative conflicts um, in that regard and maybe just recapitulate that a little bit. Well, the thing that I thought of when you were saying all that, Brandon, was um, A, I just want to make sure we understand what ambulatory is because that, that isn't maybe a common term that is used uh, maybe outside of uh, these rooms, but ambulatory just means like people have the capacity, they transport usually themselves from their residence uh, or wherever they're staying uh, to receive treatment. And an IOP that we were talking about today is an ambulatory level of care, meaning they don't live in our program, they don't live in our houses, like we don't have that opportunity for people to do that. And that is where um, that Florida model of care taking advantage of people billing, you know, saying that they are residential level of care. Meanwhile, these clients are staying in their houses. And so I think that part is important to say. And, um, and there's a, there's a, like the IOP model of care is designed for that ambulatory level of care, meaning people are at home experiencing their lives and they come to treatment to learn how to navigate those experiences um, and, and remain sober through that navigating their life. Um, that's, that's the point of it. So there's that IOP is kind of this exposure level of care where there's this mm -hmm. exposure uh, to those to triggers and to, to events that um, could lead down that path. So I, I just wanted to clarify that from from your long bullet point. Yeah, I like that you called it a bullet point at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, a lot of commas. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you bring up a really important point, Jason, that IOP is the foundation of IOP is psychosocial stressors, right? And being able to manage and navigate psychosocial stressors in real time, in real life, um, and, and, and being able to stay either with the level of recovery or um, sobriety or whatever you want to call it um, that you're looking for, right? And so you have, but in order to do that, you have to experience those psychosocial stressors so that you can deal with them, hence the exposure piece. Mm -hmm. And when you're not, and, and to some degree, what you're describing is like a, the kind, is not really exposure at all. It's still contained and it's, and um, there's not a really a chance for that individual to actually experience how they're going to relate to the world and how they're and if they are actually uh, adequately equipped to navigate the stressors that they face so that's really what IOP is geared towards at the same time it also recognizes that hey maybe I don't have all the tools I need and so in in the fact that I'm going to be experiencing these indicates that I still need more support or at least a level of support that I can't get with like an hour of therapy a week right Psychosocial stressors, didn't want to do this, but that, we're kind of inching into ASAM criteria, right? So. <laughs> yeah. You said we weren't. I, I, yeah. Well, he, yeah. he said yeah. psychosocial stressors. He, <laughs> I know. he also said he wasn't going to go off on tangents. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're lost. We're off the rails We're going to pull right it all together here, yeah. folks, in the end for you. But to that point, briefly diving into it, right? I think it's yeah. an important element of this because it's out of ASAM criteria that we're largely advocating for 
uh, authorization, length of stay, timelines, inpatient, IOP services right. whatsoever. And those psychosocial stressors are under, so ASAM for those out there, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has these six dimensions that you look at when an individual comes into treatment. Those psychosocial stressors are dimensions four, five, and six. And the other side of that are dimensions one, two, and three. Primarily dimension two is any biomedical issues that might be going on. And biomedical could be intense craving states, awful dreams, um, you know, uh, issues around medications, those types of things, right? This is where the stabilization is so important. Dimension three being primarily mental health uh, concerns, criteria, medication management around all those types of things. And so ASAM in that regard has done a really good job at, hey, this is residential inpatient services over here. And then these psychosocial stressors should be over here into the point of the path of least resistance. Uh, if we don't have any of these underlying significant yeah. difficulties, this is suited. Also, you're fully engaged in it at that point. The point of stabilization models to get dimensions one, two, and three under control and encourage the individual to see the value of pursuing these additional services if they're ambivalent or treatment resistant, right? Is that a good recap of no. ASAM? You just described medical necessity, okay. right? That's what you're establishing is, and that's really into your very first statement of like, how do you, like about identifying what is the right level of care, right? Whether it's stabilization or intensive outpatient or just outpatient or PHP level of care, it's all based on that, right? There are these criteria, these very objective criteria that we can look at to help establish, does this individual meet medical, are they meet medical necessity for the level of care that we're recommending? And that's a great, for my left brain, makes me feel so good inside, because it does, uh, lay, it just lays out an objective path that right. we can kind of lean into. And obviously there are nuances within that, but it's what keeps, uh, it's what keeps the client healthy, what provides them with the right level of care, and it keeps us on a clear ethical pathway, right, as, as an agency and every other agency that follows it. Totally. So, yeah. One last stab at this Florida model of care thing, right? The, the Florida model of care is taking individuals at times who have significant dimension one, two, and three criteria and stating after a short detox stint, we can support that in really this um, dimensions four, five, and six culture. And it is a major error. And I'm just gonna keep bringing it up because it's, the, the model of care isn't bad in and of itself. It's when somebody, a family calls and says, I have this desperate situation, and you say that it can support this when it doesn't actually have the utility principles, the staff, or any of that stuff to really do dimensions two and three, positively speaking in that regard. So we're not anti-Florida care model. We're just gonna call it out when it says that we're doing the stabilization thing uh, in that regard, or when it goes even further and it's violating all these ethical insurance principles along the way for family systems just to be aware of. And the power is in the hands of the family in that regard to, again, ask these questions, be thoughtful, because admissions line promise a lot of things, and these are things we're not thinking about in these moments of desperation where we can actually take a breath and just say, okay, this is really important to my loved one. They're in some serious, awful pain, whether it's a detox episode or otherwise. Do you do it this way or do you do it this way? Because I'm looking for this way in particular uh, in that regard. So education's important here. Jog through some ASAM medical criteria in that regard. We can see now the kind of the separation to this uh, coming in, in turn. And for me and my experience, um, you know, at Peaks, we do our intensive outpatient with, you know, peer recovery coaches. We've got people constantly communicating with individuals, even post-stabilization, 
uh, to nurture that sort of you know, resistance that might take place in the process. So we really come after it. But correct me if I'm wrong, even for the, uh, the energy we put into our intensive outpatient, those who come into our intensive outpatient from another stabilization model or from our stabilization model into it uh, have higher rates of getting through the whole program than those who just come from uh, the community uh, in that regard. And um, that feels, you know, kind of going back to the path of least resistance, the problem with just taking this path of least resistance, because uh, we'll choose the IOP model similar to choosing the private practice. And so I think our data is pretty clear and that's why I brought it up in the beginning and just want to rehash that one more time, if that's your guys' experience in looking at our IOP model in particular. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have, obviously, the stats in front of me, but I do think... What? I'm just Okay, <laughs> yeah, Quentin, yeah, this is Quentin, uh, left brain stuff. Yeah. But certainly, um, when people do have, I mean, I can't believe we are talking about ASAM like this, but when they have these other dimensions... Uh, uh, addressed and under control, their medications are regulated, their physical health is on track. Um, that gives IOP the opportunity to work on um, the other issues like a primary support system and getting relationships repaired, or if there's a financial burden or an occupational burden or even a housing burden. Um, those are the types of things uh, that get to be addressed um, in an IOP program. Also to include mental health stuff like yeah. Oh, uh, that's a that's a time to to deal with some PTSD issues and also uh, implement ongoing support for depression and that sort of thing as well. So, uh, yeah, that usually works best because the problem with the way I described earlier is that usually, you know, when when people are having, you know, very physical cravings uh, that have not been addressed, but they're trying to address it at this lower level of care. Um, it can get really frustrating uh, when people aren't successful in getting sober. Um, I, I've kind of colloquially said that like a callus begins to form. Like if, if people have repeated failed attempts to get sober at these lower levels of care, like it creates a callus over uh, like this is hard and hard work and maybe I can't do it and maybe, I, maybe it enhances shame and that sort of thing. So. In a lot of ways, I, I think it makes a lot more sense to kind of get way ahead of it and walk through the detox and residential levels of care um, to get that stabilization to then clear the deck for addressing the psychosocial stressors. Yeah, and I, and I think on the other side of that, you can't be successful coming in from the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have, actually, I think our program is pretty good about that. We have um, some really uh, wonderful successes of community IOP members. It's a matter of how many psychosocial stressors are you trying to manage when right. you walk in through the door. Yeah, right. And that's, so that's something that we're always going to assess for on the front end. And at that point, if we see like, oh, right, every dimension that we've been talking about is just in shambles, we're probably going to recommend, why don't we do some stabilization? You know, because this, I, I understand that you, you want to go this direction because it feels like it's going to be because this other direction maybe feels too heavy, it feel you're, it's, there's too much fear, there's too much shame, there's, you don't have enough support, whatever the case may be, but chances are going this path, going in the IOP level at this point in time with all of these psychosocial stressors um, so activated and kind of out of control, chances of success are really limited. You know? uh, so at the very least, it, it, at that point, even if the client still chooses to go the IOP route, at least we've started the dialogue. Like We've started that conversation of like, look, we, um, 
we'll go this route with you, but know what our recommendation is and know that when we see that if this doesn't get better, we're going to continue to, to move you in this direction. Because what, what everybody who goes through the, the doors of IOP wants is change, right? They all want to get better. And at some point, once we've established the rapport, established the trust and given them uh, and shown them what's, what's possible within that level of care, then they start to see, all right, maybe I actually, I do need something greater. I need something more. Yeah, certainly we're invested in outcomes at peaks and want to punch through this data, but you know, uh, as Joanna Conti said on the Vista Research episode, The Conquer Addiction, that uh, per her understanding of all the research outcomes and data sets out there, there's only 100 treatment centers. Now, to be charitable to the industry, of 100 treatment centers, some of them have three or four different locations, maybe five, you know, 10 locations. Yeah. So we're talking potentially 1,000 locations that are pursuing outcome data at any given time uh, in that regard. So, but 100 of 14,000 treatment centers pursuing outcome is kind of a small number uh, in that regard. But I share that caveat because at least right now, one year since the last use, you have a 50% chance of not relapsing in the process. From last use to one year, you, reduce, you go down 50% in your potential to relapse, right? At year two, you get an 85% outcome you know, per these historical studies in that regard. And I, the reason I bring that up is because you know, we're in this conversation. I can imagine you know, some of you are out there just hammering away at finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Of course, you guys are going to promote the stabilization model in this sure. regard. And of course, it's going to lean back into that direction. But I think we're really trying to share a sincere experience that um, this can go on for decades if we don't get this right and take it seriously and create a path forward and be thoughtful about it, not only as an industry, but as a family system and being honest with patient care about this is not the path of least resistance. This whole thing is going to feel like resistance uh, in that regard because uh, it's challenging to go through craving states. It's challenging to gain awareness about why we started using drugs and alcohol in the way that we did. Uh, it's a path forward. So in my head, I think, you know, this starts under the notion of like, what's the rush? We really do need time to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful to be in a nurturing sort of stabilization setting uh, to really accommodate and get that right. Uh, and then, of course, for the viewers out there, you know, test these admissions team. Make sure it's the appropriate stabilization setting in that regard. But it, moving forward here, coming off of a stabilization model into a three-day-a-week IOP or a five-day-a-week IOP, path of least resistance. If we say three days to all of our patients at peaks, everybody's going to pull the three-day cord. Now we insert this five-day-a-week thing, and, I, and, uh, and I'm speaking to those out there like, well, of course you'd want to do five days over three days, higher you know, you know, insurance reimbursements and so forth, but it's not really about that for us. Um, three days a week is just fine. Uh, and, but we're, we're trying to navigate with the five days, right? Three days a week works for us when you have a job, you have these outside things going on already. And then the five days a week, if you don't have a job, you don't have community built, all that sort of stuff, we're really trying to make up some of that lost time throughout a day and nurture that and get those components right through the peer recovery coaches. Uh, am I off here? No, or is this kind of the nope. general direction? When we're being thoughtful about these things, we're putting people into the buckets according to their downtime in a world that needs them to get to at least one year to get them to a 50% reduction in relapse rate. Yeah, I mean, medical necessity, right? Like if you don't need it, you're, we're not gonna recommend it. And but that's what, uh, again, that's what these, pro these programs are designed for. IOP5 is designed for those individuals who have, again, 
really, tr uh, really disrupted or chaotic psychosocial stressors. You know, like that is what the program is designed for. And to your, like you said, if somebody doesn't have that, if the majority, if they're only dealing with like, you know, two or three things in their life that they still need to uh, really focus on and really, really ground in order to feel like they can move forward in their recovery, then five days a week is, is too much. And eventually you actually get a diminishing return. You know, it, actually, it becomes frustrating, it seems, uh, and, and, and they'll just throw their hands up and not do anything at all. So there, you run a real risk actually, if you put somebody into your, to use your words, the wrong bucket coming out of a stabilization model. Yeah. And I think, I think you did a great job describing exactly what our program does. Yeah. Uh, it was actually uh, pretty affirming to have you say all that because that's exactly how we designed it. Like the, the two extra days we offer people are literally targeting like housing and finances and, and that sort of thing. And to Clinton's point, not everybody needs that. Like some people, yeah have an intact career um, and intact finances despite their behavior and they don't need that stuff, but a lot of people don't too, yeah. so. And for all of those out there hammering away psychosocial stressors into Google right now uh, <laughs> and listening to this, psychosocial stressors are you know, financial uh, situations that the individual's challenged by, uh, it's living conditions that you know, maybe they don't have a home to go to post-stabilization treatment or whatever the case might be they don't have a job or they have shame around pursuing a job or other downward pressures they're you know they just get out of treatment and they lost a loved one in their life and they're you know grieving through that and that's causing you know disruption and even maybe even pursuing you know going to look for an apartment that day those types of things uh correct mm -hmm. yeah also like lack of community or mm -hmm. yeah. um yeah. Unsta unstable relationships like lack of emotional Emotions, psychological yeah. support yeah, totally. Just things that compound upon each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, the life things, yeah. that, all of this. All the of adulting. The, the yeah. adulting stuff, <laughs> yeah. Why, why do we, you know, so strictly ambulatory speaking, right, why do we encourage uh, individuals, especially young adults, to not go home, to go into the community, sober living, all that sort of stuff? We get a lot of family systems say, no, it seems stable. Come back home, live in the basement. What are we trying to avoid there? I mean, sometimes we do recommend that, yeah. honestly, and uh, so I don't think yeah. we have a hard and fast rule about that or against that. Um, but there are there are certainly uh, sometimes there are just dynamics that are kind of so ingrained that that without interrupting those, uh, it's hard for uh, parents to get back into a parent lane rather than a probation officer, or addiction counselor, um, or a doctor themselves. Like it. it Sometimes it takes longer space than even in our stabilization model. Sometimes those relationships take longer mm -hmm. to literally stabilize. Um, sometimes they don't. Sometimes uh, a lot of repair work can be done and, and there isn't enough of those patterns. Like, honestly, those are case by case basis, yeah, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you just, in general, we just don't want somebody to go back into like a maladaptive environment, right? Or an environment that was at, um, at least in part, at the at a motivating factor or at the heart of what what drove them to either um, dealing with severe mental health issues or substance use. You know, mm -hmm. We want to avoid sending people back into the lion's den, so to speak. If, if, but again, if, there's, if it's just kitty cats and not lions, then we're fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I asked the question, and you know, this is going to be a sidebar maybe this episode, but uh, a positive tangent. Do not delete this, Chelsea, behind the curtain. <laughs> uh, positive. Uh, some, I'm talking to family systems, and, it, and if, as a non-parent, right, address that on this episode multiple times, but as a parent, Jason, it feels like at some point, right, you kind of trade out this parentalism with like, 
hey, you're in college and we're buddies now and yeah. we're going to have conversations I would like not to have as a parent, but as your buddy, we'll have the conversation, right? And it seems like there's this nice transition of, yes, mom, dad, son or daughter, whatever the case might be, where it becomes more friendly and less parental. And the yeah. cautionary tale I think of when I think of sort of the frustrations experienced when Johnny gets back in the basement, you know, so to speak, in that regard is that it's really challenging to stay in friendship lane because somebody's living with you. You know, maybe the expectation of a non-family member would be to pay rent, to be looking for a job, to be, you know, sort of taking care of yourself. And I think it's a challenge for family systems in my kind of view and experience of it to uh, live in that friendship lane, but at the same time having to reinforce sort of this parentalism under this tough situation of like boundaries now, learn boundaries yeah. at peaks and these sort of things. And it seems to, at times, kitty cats or lions, in a lion's den <laughs> for sure, create a ton of tension. Yeah. But even in the family systems that are pretty healthy at times, it feels like it can create some pains there. And so I just wanted to, you know, highlight with family systems maybe how to be just thinking about that as their loved one returns home or as they consider an alternative path. Yeah, I think, you know, for parent, that parent-child dynamic, like, um, I, usually, I usually say you go from that parent role, not necessarily to full friendship, but more like friend, but also like a consultant. Because there's, like, there's always going to be a power dynamic. There's always going to be a generational gap. Um, and you can't ignore kind of uh, that aspect. Um, and sometimes it's... It, it just, it, it can be too difficult for families to step into a different role uh, other than it's my house and, and my rules. And, and I don't have any problem with that. I just think, to me, the issue is just communicating that really clearly. And I've, we've certainly had parents, and I, again, I don't begrudge them at all, but they're just like, I can't, you know, if, if he, if my son or daughter is in home by nine or 10 o'clock at night, I can't, I won't be able to sleep. I won't be able to tolerate my stress. And I'll get, you know, acid reflux or whatever. And, and in those cases, it's like, well, then maybe they just shouldn't come home. Like, if it's that stressful and, and it, you know, your, your child is in their 20s, like, it might be an unrealistic expectation. It's okay. And, and so uh, maybe we just need to look in, in this other direction. I, again, I just see it so much as a case-by-case, case and, and every home is certainly different in that regard as well. He does the family stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, I think all, if anything, a lot of Jason right missed the million dollar word. It's boundaries. Yeah. It's boundaries. before individual comes. I was going to say boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> just like our leadership. Meeting. I literally was talking about boundaries. What I, was, I didn't yeah, just yeah. say the word, but yeah. okay. He, it's a little too on the nose. Yeah. 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 He knows what he's doing. We're just, we're joking. It's here. not my first rodeo. <laughs> boundaries are the thing before yeah. Johnny comes home, right? <laughs> You're negotiating yeah. these boundaries. Hey, I have this tension about you being home past 9am. I want to talk about it now because I don't want it to be a problem. Then yes, I can honor the 9am thing. Now we have already hashed out the conversation, right? Because as we've talked about, you don't introduce boundaries in the moment. You negotiate those prior to yeah. any given moment for that internal safety, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise we defend our boundaries with anger rather than yeah. uh, boundaries become a means yeah. of control rather yep. than a means of support. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> boundaries. <laughs> you know, I've been watching some of these uh, for the audience out there. Throw some popcorn in your mouth as I go on a small tangent here. <laughs> I've been watching some of these episodes uh, in the past, and I do that abruptly. Like the last episode, you said some brilliant stuff, especially around the introspection stuff. And right when you're done, I go, yep. 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I got it right here. And it's, it's, like it's really so, like minimizing. Yeah. It's so enough. I do that to him all the time as I well. Like, <laughs> for, for the viewers, that, I mean, you can't be in the studio, but I'm looking at like clocks and time, things are counting down. So in a way, I feel like move faster, you know, in that regard. <laughs> and so I'm like, yep, even though if they're after very powerful points, yeah. I apologize, I'm getting better. But you're doing great. Call it out yeah. in real time. We're all learning here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Negotiating this in real time. So are there is there anything that I've missed about intensive outpatient or things that we would like to highlight further or just educate families on in this regard? Because, you know, the real journey here has just been able to, I think, you know, from the beginning talk about there is going to be resistance to treatment whatsoever and that the path of least resistance is generally going to be chosen an opportunity. Okay, if this fails uh, at this point to build boundaries up as a family system, walk through it. Hey, I understand you're going to take IOP as the journey here. Watch something that, you know, Finding Peaks episode, and Brandon said stabilization's important, so if this doesn't go well, want to have a boundary that you will commit to these, you know, uh, higher levels of care. Okay, yes, I mean, you know, when it's good, it's good, and negotiate within those positive moments. Uh, and then getting into the differences between real ambulatory levels of care and real residential levels of care, medical necessity should dictate kind of the, uh, which, you know, bucket we land in here for my lack of good language in that, those bucket moments. And so, and then we briefly described what IOP is in general, how we look at five days a week, three days a week, different psychosocial stressors that determine that as an episode. Uh, am I missing something? Or yes. We, okay. The thing that, that we do that I think uh, is rad. Oh my <laughs> I God. I think it's so cool. Dang it. Uh, is we had uh, this episode. I, I just Never did that for the drones, I know. <laughs> um, but we, we do offer this family component. Um, we have both educational and support family groups, and then um, we've recently added um, a multi-family group um, to work on boundaries uh, and, and just healing relationships. And uh, frankly, I don't know of a lot of IOPs that um, are taking uh, the family system as seriously as we are, to be honest with you. To, to really dial in on that primary support system um, uh, as much as possible. Um, and so that, I think that part uh, we can't miss. Like we're talking to families in a lot of ways in this episode, but it is really important to say um, we really, I mean, we, Clinton and, and I talk a lot about that it's not just the client that is our client, if you will, it's the system comes into our program. And uh, that includes at the IOP level of care and it's part of our core values that you've laid out for us, Brandon, and like uh, we've really uh, taken that seriously, not just to apply it at a residential level of care, but to carry it through to the IOP level of care as well. It's a great plug. Yeah, I love, love it. that. It was yeah. rad, yeah. honestly. It was rad. Our, yeah. I told you. One of our core values is family obsession. Jason gave it away. So we're <laughs> always thinking about how to engage the families in this. And to the viewers out there listening, I wholeheartedly believe if families can really get the, the, the term boundary correct in their life, you can be such a powerful force, not in the parentalism mode of things, but a powerful source as an advocate of an individual's recovery journey that doesn't in turn come at your own emotional and lack of safety expense. Probably could have came out a little bit better there, but that's good. Uh, yeah, and I think that's powerful, and I think that's a thing we're trying to nurture in that regard. Unfortunately, insurances don't cover family systems and programming at the same time. It's this thing to be paid for on the side, and 
Um, we're not the only program out there in the world, of course, doing these types of things, but it's important to us to invest in the family systems in that regard, uh, even if there's not you know, a recruitment of fees on the other side of it, because we believe that if you guys get these concepts correct, you can be more powerful than even the agency work that we provide at times, especially post-treatment. So uh, boundaries, stick with it, learn it, do them, and invest just as much time as your loved one is in treatment, whether it's through Al-Anon, outside service, you know, third-party outside free services, or just finding a counselor that you can negotiate these boundaries with as your loved one goes through treatment and stick with it for a year. I think one of the challenging things for me is families who go, well, that's not working for me. It's like, now we sound just like the individual who's struggling over here. You know, yeah. we have to have this mentality that we're in it as well uh, to be the best possible advocate for the individual because they need these supportive structures and we have to be able to communicate well so we don't cause that dysregulation around every corner. Yeah. Fair? Fair. Yeah. Anything else? Another plug? Jeff? That's it. No, no more plugs. I think the only thing I want to say uh, is um, if you're out there and you think you need help and IOP is all you're willing to commit to, commit to it, start you know, there. start there. Like it's, it's a place to start and it can uh, at the very least uh, give you a level of support that you don't already have, give you insight that you don't already have, skills that you don't already have, and give you an opportunity to sort of acclimate to what it means to be in treatment and maybe eliminate some of the fear and shame and stigma that might be uh, creating barriers for you to get to a higher level of care that may be more appropriate. Um, some tr you know, support and treatment, some support and treatment is better than no support and treatment if you're struggling. So no matter what, um, don't feel like, there, don't ever let that become a barrier to getting help, like not knowing uh, if, if IOP is gonna be enough or thinking that you have to go to residential treatment. Like don't, don't hold yourself up like that. It's um, come in, get the help, and then move forward from there. Um, and make sure that you're, you're going to a place that is willing to meet you where you are in that mm -hmm. moment, because that'll be a pretty good indicator of the kind of, the level of care that you're gonna get as far as quality is concerned. Yeah, and that's completely yeah. fair. And in adding to that, right, private practice doesn't hurt to say, yeah. I don't have a problem, and you show up in the private practice and at least have one good conversation Absolutely. about it. Yeah. Also doesn't hurt, there are free support systems, you know, if it's mental health, it's through the NAMI lens, but certainly AA, CA, um, all of these anonymous communities in that regard are frontline uh, potential Absolutely. intervention opportunities for you to at least, you know, sit in a room and see others' experiences and see if you can relate to those well enough to you know, get well on your own journey in that path in that regard. So I, I really do appreciate you stating that, Clint, because help of any sort is better than no help yeah, uh, whatsoever. So yeah. good. Thank you. I like that. Gold yeah. Star. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. With that, everybody, uh, thank you so much for joining us here for this episode of Finding Peaks to talk about intensive outpatient programming, some of the variations of it, uh, and how it is this ambulatory program opposite of residential settings uh, out there. Hopefully this was educational and inform informal for all the uh, family systems out there thinking about how to explore treatment opportunities. Uh, finding Peaks at PeaksRecovery.com. Send us your ideas, thoughts, concerns, questions. Bring it all to us. We'd love to talk about it on this episode. Of course, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the TikToks, Chris Burns Heart Days. Chase him on the trails. Find him there. Lots of energy, lots of love for people in recovery. And I'm sure I missed something like an Instagram, 
Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. That's a lot of teen oh, no. stuff, but and whatever. Uh, Jason has a Spotify app, I guess. <laughs> that makes sense. I have sense. all the apps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, we're out of here, folks. Until next time, love y'all. Bye.